Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Today's episode is a listener Q&A episode. I decided to do this because Software Engineering Daily has been going well for a while now, and it's been a while since I did a monologue. This is not going to be one of those monologues where I've written a lot and prepared a bunch. It's going to be one where I asked the audience for questions on Twitter and on the Slack channel and got some things that people want to have answered. So we'll get to those in a second. I want to start off this episode by thanking Erica Hokinson, who joined Software Engineering Daily full-time about a month and a half ago, and she's been tremendously helpful on the front of doing operations and advertising sales and things that have allowed us to scale. And now we're going to be able to start moving into things like video. We're bringing on more guest hosts and turning Software Engineering Daily into more of a media channel. And uh, Pranay was helping out with this before he left Software Engineering Daily to go become an engineer. Pranay was the early, I guess you would call it, co-founder of Software Engineering Daily and uh, he left because he was inspired to become an engineer. Uh, Pranay remains a very close friend of mine. He's currently working at Snapchat as an engineer, uh, and I'm really glad that he was with me for a while, and I'm now really glad that Erica is with Software Engineering Daily. Um, so with that, let's get to some listener Q&A, because that's what people actually asked me to hear about. Um, and I guess Again, before I get to that, you can always reach me, Jeff, at softwareengineeringdaily.com. You can reach me on Twitter, software underscore daily. And I hope you join the Slack channel. I hope you fill out the listener survey that we recently made. We're really trying to gather more information about our listenership and find out what we can do to improve the experience. Uh, So let's get to these questions. The first question is from Abelkay, who is a user on the Slack channel. He asks, how do you see yourself leaving or exiting from SE Daily? Originally, I was planning on turning Software Engineering Daily into what many people call a lifestyle business, where it's a business that you can operate on your own, you can do it without raising money, you don't necessarily need people, maybe you have some contractors helping you out. And I did intend to leave it eventually when it was making enough money that I could use it as an income stream to bootstrap into other companies. What I've realized is that, for one, there's definitely potential for Software Engineering Daily to scale into a bigger media organization, I think quite a big one. And two, it's a complement to other things that I want to do. At this point, my workflow for Software Engineering Daily is set up an interview with an interesting person who can teach me a lot about a field of software uh, or some other field and do some research and then have a conversation with that person. And that's a great intellectual exercise. And at this point, I can do that in addition to working on another business, which is Ad4Prize. And Adverprise is a software company that I'm building and building it with a group of people. And there's synergies there. Uh, I think there are people who will start multiple businesses at once in the hopes that the multiple business ideas will have synergies and will have overlap and this is certainly a great dream of a lot of people. It's certainly a great dream of mine. I think it's definitely possible. Uh, I think what one thing I've learned from Software Engineering Daily is focusing on one thing at a time, at least at first, is a really good way to bootstrap your way towards being able to do multiple things at once. Because over time, you figure out the different you know, you're at first, you know, with Software Engineering Daily, I was doing all the different roles. At, like on day one, I was recording all the shows, doing all the editing, doing all the research, basically doing everything associated with Software Engineering Daily. Over time, I figured out the things that could be given to other people to do. Uh, and more and more of those things will be 
given to other people over time, such as guest hosts, advertising sales. Erica is handling that now. She's handling a lot of the operations duties. But there's still plenty for me to do. Uh, I can kind of pick and choose what I do at this point. And so if I want to allocate some of my time to building AdForprize, I can actually do that. And at the same time, you know, I think probably if AdForprize is successful, or I should say when it will be successful, I really have a lot of faith in that product. Uh, by the way, check out AdForprize. I hope you do check it out. It might get to a point where maybe I have to take a back seat with Software Engineering Daily. But the other guys working with me on AdForprize, and hopefully girls eventually, uh, they are doing a great job. And I think that my full attention to AdForprize is not necessarily needed. Or, you know, I think there's diminishing returns with your attention to something in, in some uh, cases. And ad for, with AdForprize, you know, I want the people I'm working with on it to have a ton of creative latitude over it. So I just kind of take a back seat where I can. All this is to say that I don't see myself leaving Software Engineering Daily, at, at least any time in the foreseeable future, because... It's it has synergies. I mean, I can imagine a future where Software Engineering Daily is a great media channel to be able to reach people who may want to work with me on software companies. So to leave Software Engineering Daily or abandon that potential voice to engineers would be wasteful. Um, so I really see Software Engineering Daily as having a meaningful journalistic uh blogging style uh, outreach effect for the foreseeable future for all the products that I want to build. Next question. Abel K. also asked this question that I'm doing second. So the first two questions are from the same person. He said, what is your personal opinion on Facebook's internet.org initiative? I'm Really glad he asked this because this this was something Pranay when Pranay was part of the show we debated this and I have continued to debate it with people. My feelings on Internet.org have actually not changed much in the last two and a half years or three years. Whenever since whenever they launched it, and actually on a previous podcast I had called the Wooden Computer Podcast. I did an interview with Jeremy Malcolm of the EFF, and he had written an uh, article that was critical of Internet.org. And I interviewed him about it, and I took him to task on some of the things that I really disagreed with, some of the critical statements he made. Sorry, my cat just got on the desk, took him down. By the way, one thing I want to change about SE Daily is I don't want to be doing it out of my apartment in a year. I would like to have a nice recording studio. I plan to have that. If I don't, you can take me to task. My cats will not always be uh, in the picture. So, internet.org. Uh, internet.org, if you don't know, is this thing that Facebook stood up. It's basically if you're in India, for example, and you have a cell phone, but you don't have internet, uh, or you don't have, uh, let's say your data plan gives you very low amounts of data every month. Internet.org is this option where you get a subset of the internet for free. And it's, as I understand, paid for by Facebook, essentially. So let's say you have no data, you take out your phone, you open up internet.org, uh, which is an app, and it's a walled garden in which you have access to Facebook. It's actually like Facebook Lite, so it's a low-bandwidth version of Facebook. You have access to, I think, Wikipedia Lite is what it's called, or Wikipedia Zero, which is a low-bandwidth version of Wikipedia. And the vision for internet.org is these low-bandwidth versions of services that are free. The malicious interpretation of this is that Facebook is trying to trick people into believing that Facebook is the internet. Uh, there have been these reports that people believe that Facebook is the internet. I just did a show where I was interviewing Quincy Larson, who is the founder of Free Code Camp. He's a good friend of mine. He is a strong advocate for net neutrality. We 
dove into some of these discussions. So that episode is a good complement to what we're talking about here. Um, the reason I'm skeptical of the anti-internet.org arguments is because it assumes this static perception uh, that humans might have. So let me unpack that. So for example, when I was, I think, nine or ten years old, uh, actually might have been eight years old or nine years old, I thought that AOL was the internet. I logged on to AOL. It was a subset of what the open, the quote-unquote open internet is, and it was my belief that this was the internet. As I grew older, I very rapidly realized that there is a much more subtle uh, definition of what is the internet, and I realized this despite not being a particularly technical young person. I used the internet I used my cell phone at the same rate that the average person did. Uh, you know, I didn't start learning about computer science stuff until I was 20 or 21. And so, despite this, I was able to gain a nuanced understanding of what the internet was. I was not tricked into believing that AOL was only the internet, or my browser was only the internet. Many people believe that, oh, you know, Facebook is a walled garden relative to what you can access via your browser. Therefore, it is not the open internet. Well, you can't access every portion of the internet through your browser. So who's to say that your browser is the open internet? And so where I'm going with this is that the idea that you can trick an entire continent of people into believing that Facebook is the internet is insane. Now... Facebook's motives are obviously not entirely charitable here. They're not saying internet.org. This is uh, awesome. We're giving you something for nothing. In order to use internet.org, as I understand, you have to make a Facebook account. Or at least to use Facebook on internet.org, you would need a Facebook account. Uh, this is an option that they're giving to people. It is an option that they hope is... It's like freemium, right? It's... Uh, it's like any freemium service. You know, when I first started using Dropbox, I used the free tier, and it took me like five or six or seven years to start using the paid version. So uh, if they can give people a free version of Facebook for five or six or seven years, and then these people use Facebook to become smarter, to become better at what they do, uh, and then they become uh, wealthy people, members of society, and Facebook can target uh, high-margin ads against them, that's a transaction that makes sense for both parties. Facebook is in a position to offer these services because they will be able to upsell in the future. And the upsell in, in this situation is they will have a uh, wealthy Indian person who might have been uh, you know, poorer before. They didn't have the money to pay for uh, a better data plan, so they were using internet.org to get free data. Uh, you know, they got wealthier, and because they're wealthier, Facebook can serve higher margin ads against them. So I just don't see this as a conspiracy at all. And so, I mean, I, I you know, I could go on and on and on about this, and if people want me to, I will, but I'm just going to cut the conversation short there because I think people that are still dogmatic about this, despite uh, kind of these very basic arguments that I've presented, and, and by the way, I think most of the tech community is essentially dogmatic about this. They have this view that people are so naive and uh, and static in their behavior that they will be seduced by Facebook, and they will just be indoctrinated for life. This is not like Scientology. It's not like you use Internet.org and you are seduced into believing that Internet.org is the Internet for the rest of your life. It just That's just implausible. Okay, so next question. This is from Grand Terror. Uh, this is another person from the Slack channel. How do you find professionals you interview? My process for doing this is 
based in either this person being influential and or being requested by the listeners, or I think of a topic that I want to do a show on, for example, LLVM, and I find somebody to interview about it. So let's take the LLVM example. With LLVM, I knew I needed to do a show on this because so many people are talking about it. But Chris Lautner is a really busy guy. That's the guy that originally started LLVM. It turns out a lot of the people that work on LLVM are really busy people, or they are employed by Apple, who, you know, they have a lockdown on communications for people. So for the LLVM episode, I ended up finding some guy that had made a YouTube video about it that was a really useful explanation of LLVM, Morgan Wild. And I did a show with him, and it was fantastic. So it's interesting that, you know, this guy who doesn't directly work on LLVM, he works in the iOS ecosystem as an iOS app developer, but he was extremely good at explaining it. So it's like, there are some topics where, sure, if I can get the person who architected this amazing open source tool like Kafka, uh, you know, yeah, I'm sure they would make for a great show. But perhaps they aren't even the best person at, at explaining this project. Uh, I would say, as a compliment to this, if you're going to interview somebody about <clears throat> a technical topic, whether this is software or biology or surgery or physics <clears throat> or really anything, it matters less who you are interviewing and more did you prepare and do they have good audio quality on their side. Those are really like the two fundamental things. Uh, but since this question is about how I find professionals to interview, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And by the way, most people, they're accessible via Twitter. If, like, if you're thinking about doing a podcast, first of all, you absolutely should. It's very easy. Uh, if you have any questions about it, I'd be happy to answer them. Um, but most people are accessible by Twitter. They're accessible by email. You can use something called Clearbit to find a lot of people's emails if you're unsure how to find those contacts. And if you contact somebody and say, hey, can I interview you for a show? That is a very flattering request. And most of the time, they will say yes. And that holds true even if you don't really have an audience, which is pretty incredible. That's why podcasting is such a crazy hack. Next question. This question comes from Twitter. How do you make the break from reading and writing code to deeply understanding it? I made a lot of side projects in my years as a programmer before starting Software Engineering Daily. In fact, I have shipped barely any production code at the companies I worked at. I was not a very good employee. I was really bad at following uh, the instructions and doing the work that I was assigned because I would get really bored and wouldn't be a productive employee. But I had so many ideas for side projects, and I had trouble finding people who wanted to work on them with me, so I ended up writing a lot of prototypes by myself, and most of these were really lame and non-useful prototypes. Uh, My favorite project that I worked on maybe before Software Engineering Daily, I think, you know, unless you talk about podcasts, was this program I made called Moonstocks. It's actually on the Android Play store, the Google Play store for Android, and this was really the project where uh, I got a lot of self-confidence in terms of the fact that if you're a software engineer, you can really build anything, and it's a really empowering feeling. I'm really glad that I got that while I was at school, because most of the people who went through uh, school with me, I think they never had a project that was really big and entirely self-directed where they, where the goal was to have a, a finished piece of software at the end of it, and I worked on worked on this with a small team, uh, and so this process of building something end to end, having an idea, uh, specking out the architecture, specking out the order of operations for building something, and then going through and building it, and understanding that there are some really tough psychological hurdles that you might have to make it through in order to build something for the first time. After a while, these psychological hurdles go away because you realize it's just about sitting down and doing the work. Uh, But 
the first couple times you do a project, your own project, it, it can be psychologically, I mean, I don't want to say difficult, because it's not difficult, but it's trying. Um, and the reason I'm saying this is because when you do an entire project, then you start to deeply understand aspects of it. Because if you're owning end-to-end the product and the engineering, you start to understand how product decisions affect engineering and how engineering decisions affect product. Uh, and then just all these different pieces start to fit together. Now, as I was doing these different projects in my uh, on my way to doing Software Engineering Daily, uh, I was also doing podcasting. I podcasted for Software Engineering Radio. I did my own podcasts, The Quoracast and Wooden Computer. And in doing these podcasts and listening to podcasts all the time, it almost created like a dialogue in my head that was constantly going about software and thinking about software and about technical topics and about how you have conversations with people. And I think part of the reason that a lot of people love podcasts so much is it it's a really high bandwidth way of consuming information while doing other things like washing dishes or commuting or exercising. And it makes these repetitive activities become intellectual. And so, you know, while other people might be doing these activities in a non-intellectual way, which is fine, or, or they're meditating while they're doing these activities, or they just like the silence, or they're listening to music or doing something else, uh, if you are consuming technical content during these off periods, then it's surprising how fast you can accrue a technical amount of, like a, a large amount of technical information and it's like compound interest, and before you know it, like a switch flips, and and you can understand a lot of stuff. Um, now, this question, how do you make the break from reading and writing code to deeply understanding it? This presupposes that I deeply understand software. Again, I have written barely any production code. Um, I understand a lot of aspects of software, but deeply understanding. I, I would hesitate to say that, um, but I, I think I have a unique understanding based on the unique characteristics of the information that I have consumed. G-E-O-W-A-4, Geowa4, and this guy has been a longtime Slack user, uh, I'm glad he's a friend of the show. I don't have his uh, full name here handy right now, but uh, thanks for being a longtime listener and Slack user. He asks, what do I need to start a business? Do I need an attorney? Do I need an accountant? Do I need an LLC in Delaware? What's all the boring stuff that no one ever talks about? Yes, you need these things. I started with an accountant. That was the first person I talked to, and that was when I was doing software engineering daily. And that was actually I got that I got an accountant at the moment when Pranay joined, and I'm so grateful that Pranay joined me then because I have such a low ability to process information that is not immediately interesting to me, and I'm trying to get better at this. I think I have gotten better at it, but Pranay was really good at digesting the things that the accountant would say about what do we need to do to set up. And what do we need to do in terms of like LLC stuff? Where do we set up the LLC? I think we actually set it up in Wa- in Washington. Uh, so we didn't need an L- a Delaware LLC in that in this scenario. Although since then I started AdForPrize, and AdForPrize uh, with AdForPrize I got a lawyer early on. Uh, that was the first thing that I got, and uh, apparently like in. in Silicon Valley, where I found this lawyer, um, Pete Hunt connected me with that lawyer. Uh, the lawyers will often defer your fees for the first $50,000 worth of stuff. And then you can, uh, they defer your fees until you raise a, a round of money that's like 500000 or more, uh, which is a pretty sweet deal because there's all this, I mean, it's a good deal for them too because they could charge a lot of fees once you do raise money or if you do raise money and they're doing this based on they're making this deal based on the 
assumption that the expected value is worth it, that that you are going to raise money in enough potential futures where it's worth getting you on their, uh, or you're getting them on retainer, uh, that situation. And this process has been awesome because the attorneys take care of so much of this back-end work. They set up your LLC. Uh, actually, I think a, a, a C corporation. I think I, I think Adverprise is a C corporation. Uh, C, as you know, like all, all this boring stuff that no one ever talks about, I don't really uh, understand it quite yet. I'm getting a, a lesson in it now. I'm learning on the fly. Um, I, like I like right now, for example, I'm trying to figure out what is the the amount of stock that I'm going to offer to the early employees of Adverprise. And this turns out to be a subjective question, and you have to understand how do stock options work and uh, how does vesting work? What does a one-year cliff mean? Uh, what do venture capitalists want to see? What does your valuation mean? And all of these questions are less interesting and less easy for me to understand than questions of software. And so the way I entice myself to learn about these is uh, learn about them at the last minute. At not not completely at the last minute, but, you know, it's like just-in-time learning. You know, you... Okay, so I'm going to have to offer a stock plan to, to employees of Adverprise soon. Uh, that puts me under the guillotine. If I don't... If the, t- if the date comes where I have to give an offer to somebody and I don't know what the stock plan is, then I'm in trouble because I can't give them an offer. So... Putting yourself under the guillotine can can help. Um, so in short, what do you need to do to start a business? Uh, I mean, I would recommend finding an attorney, finding an accountant, uh, and or finding an advisor who can walk you through these things and learning what learning why you're doing things as you're doing them. Like if you don't know what your vesting schedule should be, for example, for the stocks the, for the options that you're giving. Basically, ask somebody to explain it to you. Like, okay, what is the vesting schedule I give the employees that I'm working with? And if they give you an answer you don't understand, ask them again. If they give you an answer you don't understand again, go with the default forms and give that set of options to your employees. And, uh, you know, at least you're reverting to the mean there. And if you figure out that that's not what you wanted, then you'll learn the hard way. But in that case, at least you learn. Okay, the next question. T. Canavan asks, uh, and this is another frequent user of the Software Daily Slack, and he also has sent me several emails, Tim Canavan, so thanks for being a loyal listener. Do you ever get time to try out the software discussed? If so, what software have you tried out based on the show? Are you more confused about the different streaming frameworks than you were at the start? I rarely try out the software that is discussed, unless we're talking about the stuff that the advertisers are offering. I have tried out most of the things that, perhaps all, no, not all the things, but most of the things that is are advertised on Software Engineering Daily. I have a good, I have a good understanding of, as far as the databases, the streaming frameworks, the programming languages. No, I don't have firsthand experience with them. And I think that's actually useful in some in in, in some light, um, and that's because most of the listeners are not going to have firsthand experience with most of these things. So in this world, I'm putting myself in the shoes of the listener. Uh, now, this is kind of a, an excuse in some light because it's an excuse not to use these things and instead just read documentation, read blog posts. Uh, have a very skin-deep understanding of the things, which is easier from my point of view. But again, I do think there is some value to having the beginner's mindset when I explore these topics. Because when you hear a show, it like for example, I'm fairly familiar with Java and the JVM. And if I have a discussion with the with, about somebody with Java and the JVM, I may be asking questions that are more technical than I realize, that presuppose a more educated listener than I realize. And I know that many of the listeners are coming from a coding boot camp, and they don't have a whole lot of experience. They may have zero experience with the JVM, so I shouldn't be making those kinds of assumptions with them. Now, the question about the different streaming frameworks, 
uh, I am still pretty confused about the different streaming frameworks. Um, I think what I have a better understanding for now is that streaming and batch are, there's kind of a gradient between them. And what these things are often referring to is what is the frequency that you're sending data over some kind of pipe. And if you're talking about streaming, you're often giving the impression that you're just, as these, as these things are coming in, uh, so like let's say logs, let's say you have a bunch of logs that are being generated from a system and you are, uh, you're, you're throwing those logs through a process that uh, enriches the logs with um, other data that is like maybe geospatial data. Like maybe every log message contains a, uh, you know, like a, a geolocation and you're putting it through a, a, a streaming system or a batch system that is enriching those logs with uh, more information about that geolocation um, like it's in, in enriching them with uh, very rich location data rather than just a geolocation. It's telling you what stores are nearby and what people are nearby. And, and then you're putting it into a database. And so the question is, are you streaming exam? Are you streaming these things in one by one? Like every time you get an external request, you get an external log message that comes through this streaming system. Uh, and you're enriching it one by one, and then you're putting it in the database, or are you taking a batch of examples uh, that are all coming into this uh, enrichment process? And let's say you get like you're getting 20 examples at a time, and then you're uh, enriching all 20 at once, and then throwing them all in the database at once. Both of these different approaches can make sense given certain constraints around you know your network or uh your or other aspects of your throughput um and uh beyond that i don't really understand much about batch versus streaming still and maybe that's because i haven't done many shows about it recently um but i think early on when i did all these shows about batch versus streaming i was under the impression that oh batch is bad and we're moving beyond the world of batch and we're moving towards this world of streaming and streaming is good and these things are pretty contrived. And so if uh, maybe you want to uh, listen back to the Dataflow episode that I did. Uh, it was Dataflow and Apache Beam with Francis Perry. That's one ex- one show where we go deep into the discussion of batch versus streaming. I should probably re-listen to that because uh, it's been a while since I refreshed my memory of what batch versus streaming really is. Nick D. Nick D. asks... It used to be that the defense industry drove innovation in the private sector, but now the opposite is happening. What are the ways defense industry software engineers can begin to implement technology talked about on this show and in the tech area? I believe there is a place for containerization, but CI is difficult for airborne platforms. These are just a few examples, and I would appreciate anyone's thoughts on the matter. National defense, uh, so number of examples come to mind. Uh, the first one is Palantir, I think, because this has been in the news a lot lately, and people are expressing concerns about Palantir making a Muslim database or helping ICE agents enforce immigration. What I like about the Palantir philosophy is there's a really great, I think it was a fortune profile of the CEO of Palantir, and he's this kind of madman philosopher who runs Palantir. And what he says is that he doesn't like the fact that there is government encroachment on personal liberty. And his response to that is that Palantir wants to define the maximums of the the maximums and the protocols that personal liberty can be infringed upon by and and they will do that by providing the best technology solutions and i think this is a pragmatic approach to uh to looking at national national security because every time you have a you know i did a show with bruce schneier about uh you know 
freedom versus privacy or security versus privacy like are there inherent tensions between security and privacy there are some and there are some tensions there are other places where uh more privacy means more security um like encryption by default for example you know the idea of if you create a backdoor for a for a uh someone in the nsa to look into then that also creates a potential backdoor for a bad person um and so where this fits into palantir is that uh if they are the top vendor of intelligence services then the government has to play by their rules in some sense um and you know i certainly don't feel great about the idea of of palantir making a muslim database uh myself but i appreciate the boldness and the sentiment of palantir's uh ethos as a company um and i find it to be more upfront about what it's doing as an intelligence company than Google or Facebook? Like, do we really understand the relationship between Google and Facebook and the government? I, I don't think so. Not really. I mean, to some degree we do, but um, anyway, so and, and so a broader point, um, I do think that it's pretty awesome that the, the battles that we're fighting uh, will increasingly move to information space where people are not getting uh, severely harmed uh, unless you know hospital systems get hacked and you know the power is shut down and uh, you know a life support machine runs out of power or uh, because the power grid gets hacked then the uh, the world goes into bedlam but the idea of information technology being used as a preventative uh, uh, preventative measure against uh, warfare is, I think, kind of promising. Uh, you know, there's the debate around if we move our warfare to robotics-based warfare and drone-based warfare, it removes the sense of human consequence, and it turns the drone operator's mode of battle into a video game. If you're a drone operator and you're controlling this drone that's like shooting down militants and maybe you accidentally hit a civilian and you're not there on the battleground, does it remove your sense of culpability? Uh, I don't know. I haven't read much psychological studies of drone operators, but my sense would be that they are not so removed from the consequences of their actions. Um, But this is kind of avoiding the... The question, like, how, in what ways can the defense industry software engineers begin to implement technology talked about on the show and in the tech area? This is so. This question is kind of like suggesting that the defense industry is different from other companies. I think that you know, s- certainly stuff where hardware is involved, like airborne platforms, for example. You mentioned it's hard to do CI for airborne platforms. Um, I think we're getting there. We're going to get there. I mean, this is, you know, we did these shows about Transcriptic, which is this cloud laboratory that daisy chains together these different hardware systems. We did a show about manufacturing, which daisy chains together these hardware systems once again. And it's hard. Yes, it is hard to do CI on these platforms because they're proprietary systems. Uh, They may be old. Uh, Maybe you're not even deploying your own software to it. You're just interfacing with it. Um, uh, but, you know, as we have this revolution of cars and drones that are built in the Internet 2.0 era, these systems, and Tesla, like look at Tesla as an example of hardware. Uh, you know, you go to sleep and your Tesla updates over Wi-Fi and you get up in the morning and you're driving a new car. It's got new functionality added to it. That will, over time, be the way that our airplanes are built, the way that our um, our our microwaves, <laughs> our microwave ovens are probably going to be built. Like probably you'll have updates pushed to, to your refrigerator overnight. It's going to be a bright future. And um, so, yeah, hopefully I've provided enough detail on this question about defense. Another question from Twitter: 
What's your process and sources to keep up with tech news and trends? The process is that I love consuming information. It gives me a high like nothing else. I like to do it while I'm exercising or drinking a cup of coffee or sitting on the couch and I just can't stop consuming information. I love it so much. And so that's the process is that I'm constantly consuming. And if I'm doing something like cooking, then uh, I'll be listening to a podcast, consuming information that way. Um, Otherwise, the main tools that I use are Facebook, Twitter, Hacker News, Pocket. Uh, Pocket is this awesome tool for saving articles to read for later. And you can make a browser extension where if you're you know, let's say you have five minutes in between uh, two tasks that you're doing in software engineering. Maybe you open up Hacker News, you op- and then you look at and like, oh, there's five awesome articles on Hacker News. So what I like to do in that kind of scenario is I'll open up all five articles in new browser tabs, and then I'll go to each of those browser tabs and save it to Pocket using the Pocket browser extension. And then I have the Pocket app on my phone. And when I go to a coffee shop to have a cup of coffee then I will read through the articles that I have saved to Pocket. And so that allows me to batch these medium-form articles uh, about software. And I find this to be a really enjoyable way of reading um, because I actually barely read any long-form visual books these days. I love audiobooks, and I love long-form podcasts, but long-form written content, uh, I just don't really read unless there's a really important article or a book that is only in text format. Um, and so other than that, like talking to people is really useful to me. Uh, you know, I'll occasionally have phone calls with people, but just doing these podcast episodes is pretty, it's a pretty nice way to keep up with what's going on because it's sort of my job. I cannot effectively uh, have a podcast if I don't understand what's going on because I'm interviewing these people about these kinds of topics. So, and just to wrap that up, social media is awesome. Twitter and Facebook are so awesome, and Quora is awesome too. Uh, The people that have an allergy to these things, I think, are not using them correctly. Next question. I didn't write down the name of the listener that asked this question because I forgot to. Is behavioral-driven development or test-driven development approach still a thing as in first to do, or is it just something that Reddit or Hacker News loves? I can answer this from the point of view of somebody who's worked on a lot of projects and the point of view of somebody that is now turning what was a project into a company, which is Adforprize. In my previous personal projects, I did not write unit tests because writing unit tests often turns a fun project into a project that feels like work. And I understand the value of having tests in place because it makes it easier to ship software and be sure that your software works. And in school, I remember taking a software engineering class with Glenn Downing at University of Texas, who is one of the best teachers I've ever had. He's almost like a drill instructor for software. Uh, But that's, in fact, one of the places that I disagree with his approach, because he puts a lot of emphasis on testing. And I think that this is a, a tendril of corporate mentality that has made its way into the narrative around what software development is. Software development is, uh, you're, you're building something that is a work of art. And uh, certainly there are, there, are certain, there are systems where maybe, okay, the, the, the emphasis on art is, is not as big. Like, you know, if you're building an electronic medical record system or aviation software or self-driving cars, you want to have tons and tons of tests in place because anything that breaks, somebody could lose a life. But a software tool that plays music or uh, ranks news articles, these things can be really fun to build and 
you don't want to make that process of building less fun because you learn your best when you are having fun. And my philosophy is that this extends to companies and productive companies. I think productive companies are fun to work at and they keep the fun that their employees are having in mind. And the way this is manifesting at Adverprise is we don't have many tests at this point. We've got uh, three developers that are working uh, 20 to 40 hours a week each, uh, and there are not tests yet. And part of that is because testing is not fun, and so we're not prioritizing it because I'm, I'm, I'm telling the developers, you guys should prioritize for having fun because this is not like a mission-critical piece of software. It's very important to us. And we're doing a lot of user testing where we build the product, we ship the code, and then we test it in a beta environment that is not in production yet. Uh, and we test you know, the happy path, the sad path, as many edge cases as we can, and then we document bugs. And if the bugs aren't terrible, then we ship it to production. If they are terrible, then we fix the bugs and repeat the process. And um, this works just fine for us. So I think BDD or TDD, like I think the TDD approach of like writing tests before you write the actual code, this definitely works for some people. Some people love this way of writing software. And if you do, you should write software in that way. I mean, one of the things I've learned in doing this podcast is people do things different ways. And the more dogmatic I get about stuff, the more people write into complain about my dogma and I use that as a signal that I'm being too dogmatic, I'm being too opinionated. This is a field where people have a lot of different opinions and I think the people who are dogmatic about TDD or BDD, they should do TDD or BDD and if somebody else that they encounter disagrees with them, then those people probably shouldn't work together. Uh, but those disjoint sets of opinions can coexist in the same world, just maybe not the same company. Next question. What are some go-to activities when you're stuck during work or programming? I like to go on a run or get some exercise. And that is, I actually try to break up my exercise routine into multiple stages throughout the day because I always get stuck or I always get into a state where I'm unproductive. Um, and so like running, going for a run is like a nice treat. It's meditative. I can listen to a podcast. I can listen to music and get unstuck. Now, what another thing I'll say is that I actually don't find myself getting stuck these days because I'm working on things that I really love. Uh, there are impediments that I hit, but one thing I would say is I did get stuck a lot when I was working on stuff that I didn't care about. So if you find yourself getting stuck a lot during work or during programming on the side, it could be a sign that you're actually not working on the right thing. If you don't love the thing that you're programming, you might be working on the wrong thing. Or you might want to find something else that is so fun that you could do in your side projects that you are more motivated to finish the boring work that you feel that you have to do. Maybe you're in a position like maybe you're on an H-1B and you have no choice but to work at a certain company and no choice but to do the boring work that the company has assigned you because it's kind of like indentured servitude in some of these H-1B situations. But in that situation, even if you're an H-1B, you could frame it such that the faster I get through this task, the quicker I will get to my side project that feels like liberation. And that mindset can motivate you to get through places where you're stuck more quickly. Another question uh, that I didn't write down the asker of it. The person says, uh, I'm curious what sorts of trends have bubbled to the top of your mind after interviewing so many people across many different areas. I suspect ad tech and entrepreneurship are up there, but I'm sure you've identified plenty of interesting high-level patterns. Yes, I have. Um, this is a good question, whoever asked it. Um, and I guess this my answer will be somewhat along the lines of entrepreneurship. Uh, the tools available to the technical user 
have become so high level and so good that you can write down a list of the new software tools that have been made available by services. Um, I'm thinking things like Twilio, which allows you to send text messages and phone calls, which is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. But I, I always use that as an example because I just think it's an awesome platform, aside from the fact that they're a sponsor. But Twilio, uh, there's a service called Lob that I read about recently where you can send junk mail, basically. Well, I shouldn't say send junk mail, but you can send automated mail, right? Like as an API, you can send flyers and physical goods from an API call. That's pretty cool. Uh, things like SparkPost, where you can send automated email. Uh, that's another sponsor of the show. And also like these high-level platforms like Heroku that uh, take a lot of the operational burden out of running software. Uh, that's another sponsor. I'm not trying to mention, mention sponsors here, uh, but I've just found myself doing that. Anyway, all I'm trying to get at the point of is these high-level tools. This is a really new thing. And the reason I like to emphasize it is it makes, quote-unquote, building a business so much easier that it's really turned the incentives of entrepreneurship versus working at a corporation on its head. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because I, d- I did not at all uh, intend for this podcast to become like a become an entrepreneur type of podcast because I listened to a lot of those before I started this show. I, I listened to the James Altucher show, for example, or Entrepreneur on Fire, these shows that are about encouraging people to go off on their own and pursue their dreams and uh, be an entrepreneur and so on. Um, I think I very rarely use that word entrepreneur in in this show. But um, if we're talking about trends that are important to software engineers, I think that this trend is really important because... So like, you can go to IndieHackers.com, for example. I did a show about indie hackers with Cortland Allen, and then uh, I did a follow-up, uh, well, he did a follow-up where he came to the Software Engineering Daily Meetup and gave a talk about indie hackers and why there are all, all these indie hackers that are building small businesses on their own. And a lot of it is because it's just so much easier these days. Not only is it easier because of the tools that I mentioned before, but because there are so many customers. Everybody has the internet. And if you can solve somebody's problem, like every and all, every everybody has problems in their life, right? If you can solve somebody's problem for a dollar, if they they will pay you a dollar to solve that problem. If that if that problem takes ten minutes for them to solve every day, and you can solve it with an automated solution for a dollar, people will pay for that. And that's an underestimated uh, aspect. I know that's that's like business one hundred and one, but my point here is that. More and more work that people are doing is done on the computer, and a computer has all kinds of problems in terms of the the efficiency, like our our the our workflows of you know like if you're a social media marketing manager, you probably have all sorts of problems in your workflow that I don't know about. I would probably understand them if I looked deeply at the world of social media marketing, and I could probably think of a business idea to build. And I would have the automated tools to to build that solution quite quickly. Um, and there are a lot of social media marketing managers that get paid a lot of money, and they would easily be able to pay for that solution that would buy them time. And um, yeah, so I guess this is like the entrepreneurship side of, of things that uh, is a trend I've noticed. And the listener also asked about ad tech, and I'll certainly say that uh, ad tech all of the problems in ad tech, that's part of why I'm getting into that business with Adverprise. It's not necessarily because I love advertising, but because I see it as an opportunity for uh, a high-margin business. So if you're interested in making a high-margin business and you don't know where to start, you could very easily look into the ad tech business. It's sort of like it, you know, if you wanted to make money in the late 80s or the early 90s, you went to Wall Street because there were just so many opportunities on Wall Street Ad tech is kind of the same way these days. Um, and, okay, one other trend, uh, because there are some questions that I didn't get to uh, about open source software, and I think the tension between software as a service and open source is an interesting tension, 
and this is maybe what I would describe as a quote trend. Um, so, you know, early in the early two thousands, I think we had this trend where like, oh my gosh, there's all this open source software, Kafka and Hadoop and and but oh my goodness, it is really hard to run because it's really complex. A lot of it's like distributed systems based stuff, and you have to have somebody stand it up in house to deal with it. The modern solution to this is you outsource this to a company that specializes it in it. And this is the rise of the SaaS companies, the software as a service companies or the platform as a service companies uh, that you can build on top of. And this ties into what I was saying originally about the fact that there's so many tools now that you can build on top of. But part of the reason is because just because there's an open source tool for solving something doesn't mean that it's easy to stand up that open source tool and operationalize it. So I think we might see a shift to maybe more closed source or, you know, companies that, I mean, certainly there are things like Kubernetes that make a lot of sense to open source because it's such a big project. uh, It's such a big idea that there are, you know, many different people that can make money off of it in the same ecosystem. Um, and there's also stuff like React.js, like React, uh, not only is it, does it satisfy that big platform thing that I just discussed, but you know I'm not sure how you monetize React.js unless you take an approach like Exponent and you build a, a runtime platform for React Native apps. Um, the point I'm trying to make here is that software engineers are going to find themselves purchasing software as a service tools more and more, and pulling down code from open source repositories less and less. Uh, Or maybe they'll just be doing more of both. I'm not sure. Maybe they'll be putting together bigger and bigger building blocks. Some of those building blocks are open source tools like NPM packages. Some of them are SaaS tools like Twilio. But much of the stigma against closed source solutions in the past was because the closed source vendors, such as Microsoft or Oracle, uh, were providing solutions that uh, were sort of predatory in their pricing and in their functionality. And I think that's less the case with Amazon. I think it's less the case with, uh, again, something like Twilio. Uh, These companies have realized that the margins on their services and the economics of their services are so good that they want to continually offer more compelling solutions to their customers rather than trying to exploit their customers as much as possible and trying to extinguish all competitors. Uh, We'll see more of a trend towards cooperation and interoperability between these different services because they make so much money. Uh, SaaS companies make a lot of money. I mean, that's a really general statement, but the fundamental economics of selling software uh, for a good margin because you get you yourself get economies of scale on vending that software, um, it makes for a really appealing environment for the end user that can piece together these different uh, uh, tools and not have to hire an operations person to manage the SMS system. Last question. As Software Engineering Daily progressed, and this is from another person whose name I forgot to write down. Again, I'm sorry for this. As Software Engineering Daily progressed, it seems to me that the flow of the interviews has gotten a lot smoother. Early on, the structure sometimes led shows to feel like a series of distinct questions and answers rather than a continuous interview. I know you pride yourself on preparation, but I'm curious how often you let yourself follow an interesting conversational thread away from what you've planned and prepared for. Are there any instances that come to mind when you went far off script and it went notably well or notably poorly? Yes. The most recent example that comes to mind is a show I did with Colton Andrus, who is the creator of Gremlin, which is Chaos Monkey as a service. Uh, So this is a system, a service that will randomly cause failures in your system to help you build a more anti-fragile software system yourself and we ended up talking as much about failure injection as we did about company cultures because he worked at amazon he worked at netflix now he's starting his own company 
And we had some shared lineage there because I worked at Amazon only for eight months. He worked there for like two and a half years or so, or, or five, no, five years, I think, and then two and a half years at Netflix. And so Netflix and Amazon are often compared in terms of their leadership because Jeff Bezos is a notoriously good leader. Reed Hastings is also a notoriously good leader. They both have uh, these sets of cultural values that are so different than anything that came before them. You can look up either the Netflix slide share or the Amazon leadership principles, and you know these things sound like, oh my God, culture and leadership principles, who cares about these things? They actually are crucial building blocks for how these companies are able to grow so quickly and recruit such good people, such entrepreneurial people, for that matter, uh, because they create these unique working environments that are hard to find. Um, so we ended up talking about a lot of different stuff, and it, culture was at the center of a lot of it. Uh, I mean, and it related to failure injection because, you know, what kind of culture is willing to inject failures into their system? Uh, it takes kind of a distinctive culture, uh, or at least it did in the past. Uh, maybe not so much anymore. And it's absolutely true that the flow of interviews has gotten smoother, and I really tried to put a lot of work into that. I know that the early episodes... Like I did a show with Matej Zaharia, who created Apache Spark early on. And if you go back and listen to that show, it's like this guy doesn't even know what Spark is. Like me, when I was asking questions, I didn't understand what Spark was. I had read documentation. I had watched YouTube videos. I had really tried to get a feeling for what this is. But I did not have a good feeling for what it is. Um, I was still able to conduct a pretty good interview because I prepared and I had scripted the questions to ask. So, you know, I asked a question that was probably like, so Spark gives you this ability to have a distributed working set. Why is that good for data science? And then he gave me an answer that I was not able to digest. And so I went on to the next question. How does Spark take advantage of in-memory systems like Tachyon? Uh, and because I was basically ignoring his previous response, it gave the interview this really jilting, non-human feel. It almost felt like, you know, like when you listen to an audiobook and it's like, okay, this is pretty good, but it doesn't feel as organic as a podcast conversation. I think that's why podcasts are, it's one reason podcasts are maybe more beloved than audiobooks because you get this feeling of being in the room with a couple people that are having a conversation and it really takes you there and it, it's such an engrossing and unique and underrated experience uh, audiobooks are a little more mechanistic and that is how my early software engineering daily interviews felt because mostly i had just stolen the format from software engineering radio uh, except i did not have the experience of most of the hosts of software engineering radio so the way that I developed conversational ability over time was just by beating my head against the wall, gradually understanding these topics by engaging with them more and more, doing more and more preparation, uh, listening back to the interviews I did, and trying to pick up on my vocal tics. I know that I've reverted to some vocal tics when I'm doing this monologue, for example, because this is not my usual format and I'm not as trained to be able to do it properly, so maybe I'm stuttering, maybe I'm going off on tangents too much, I will try to improve this format as well. I'm constantly looking for places to improve my vocal cadence. A friend of mine recently told me that uh, I, I should read this book about broadcasting, and she sent me some great tips from that. Uh, book about broadcasting, and I'm going to follow them. I'm going to read through some of that book. Uh, although, as you've probably sensed from some of the other things I've said, I tend to, my educational process tends to be try and fail before, uh, instead of like reading something and then avoiding the mistake in the first place. Uh, and, and, so this is not something I'm proud of. This is probably an anti-pattern in some ways. 
And so maybe I'll, reading this broadcasting book will help me iron out some of these things that I have not been able to identify myself. Maybe I should get a tutor who should help me, uh, who can help me with broadcasting because if I could help, if I could spend a little time getting lessons about how to improve my conversationality a little bit better, then that would influence every podcast episode and that would save so many people's times. It would make a better podcast listening experience. Um, so the reason I'm just saying this is because I can get a lot better at having conversations. And, um, uh, you know, I think some of the shows that I've done where I've gone off script and just had a conversation with the person have gone really, really, really well. In fact, most of the time when I do go off the script, it goes really, really well because I always have a, a long outline prepared and I'm always ready to fall back on it. And I'm only going to deviate into a off thread conversation if I feel that that conversation is going to be useful and engaging and interesting to the listener and more interesting than the planned roadmap I have. So we've gone over an hour at this point. Thank you for listening to this Q&A episode. If you liked it, let me know. If you didn't like it, let me know. As usual with these experiments, I'm partially doing it as a way to better understand things that the listeners might like. So again, uh, thank you for contributing to Software Engineering Daily by listening to it. That was another question I didn't get to. How do I contribute to Software Engineering Daily? You don't need to. I've got advertisers. So if you listen and you enjoy, you are contributing to it. Now, that said, there are some super fans that have begged me to set up a Patreon account. So I set up a Patreon account. If you want to throw money at me, I'm not going to turn it down, and I will reinvest it into the company, into things like video. We are working on video now. I hope to have something for you uh, within a month that you will enjoy. And yeah, uh, always send me feedback. Fill out the listener survey. Uh, any of this information is on softwareengineeringdaily.com. Join the Slack channel. Send me feedback. Send me feedback. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to the normal format tomorrow. Tomorrow.